few months ago, I don't know if you were here, but a few months ago I was able to preach to you God's word from Daniel chapter 2, and now I'm going to move and begin the book uh, in Daniel chapter 1. So we were going to read uh, the whole chapter, and that will serve as our text as well this morning, Daniel chapter 1. I will read this Old Testament uh, prophecy, this book, um, beginning at verse 1 and ending, at, of course, at verse 21. There we find the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, and who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who has appointed you your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age, then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please set your servants for 10 days, please test your servants for 10 days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants." So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. After the sermon, we'll sing from hymn uh, 17, the stanzas 1, 3, and 6. 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever said these words to your daughter or to your son when they, when they left home? Remember who you are. Or maybe you said, remember who you belong to. Remember who identifies you or who you are identified with. Because as, as children, even children born into the covenant, we, we belong to, to Christ, his mark, as we confess, his mark and emblem we bear. We are his. Now imagine with me this morning the tears that were flowing from the eyes of the parents of these four young men, possibly no older than 15 or 16 years when they were snatched from their home and taken to live in the king's college for an indefinite period of time. You could almost hear the parents say after these boys, uh, remember who you are. You belong to Yahweh, the God of our fathers. Remember that. The parents knew that Babylon would try to make them their own. They would be indoctrinated by the wisdom, the poetry, the culture, even the worship of the Babylonian deities. But would they remember who they belonged to? Would they stand for the God of Israel and obey his holy will there? Our children do not have to go to Babylon to be indoctrinated by her false worship and false gods. You know that. No, beloved, Babylon has actually entered into our homes. Through countless media and social media options, all the wares of Babylon are, are delivered to our, our doorstep, even more so into our pockets. And the modus operandi, uh, the way the devil works is the same yesterday, today, and will be until Christ returns. It's to make our children identify with Babylon, not with Christ. To stat, snatch the hearts of our children and say, you don't belong to Christ. You don't belong to the King of Kings. No, you belong to me. I'll look after you, says the devil. And then they head off to college or university or even to high school. And we cry out after our children, remember who you are. And please do not forget, we pray you won't. That's why this chapter is so relevant, brothers and sisters. We turn in faith and we ask, what can we learn from these four young men this morning? For our own young men and young women who are sitting amongst us. Can we learn anything, especially from Daniel, who seems to take the lead here, as he decides and purposes in his heart not to eat the king's food or drink the, king, the king's wine? Can, can we learn anything from Daniel this morning? And I, and I say we can. Of course we can. All scripture is meant to teach us, to direct us and guide us. But the question we begin with then is this. How did they stand, or how did Daniel stand in faith 
to, with, to Yahweh and not conform to the patterns of the Babylonian culture? How did he withstand that pressure of conformity? And you will answer me, some of you. You will say, well, it's by grace. It's only by grace. And I will respond to you and say, that's right. It's by sovereign grace. If you were to ask Daniel, he would say the same words. God was gracious to us. He blessed us. He provided a way. Still, this forces the second question that we have to answer then this, after, this morning. How did this grace function in Daniel's life so that he didn't conform? How did that grace take wings? How did it play itself out in the reality, in his, in his context? How did that happen? I suggest to you that the grace that God showed him functioned in this way, that he knew his Lord and trusted him. He knew him. You see, Daniel understood at least three things about God that are critical for us to be able to stand in our current age, in our current secular post-Christian age that we find ourselves here in Canada. There's three things that we need to hold on to dearly as we stand against the pressures of a world that wants to conform us and change us and steal our hearts. The three things are here, and this is basic theology. Theology 101. The first thing that Daniel understood about God is that he is sovereign. He is in control. It doesn't matter how big the nations get and how loud and rancorous they are. He's in control. The second thing Daniel understood is that God is holy. He's uncompromisingly holy. He's holy in Israel, but he's also holy, a holy God of Babylon. He's holy in Canada as he's holy in Australia. He's holy over this dominion. He runs a holy and just world from his throne. And thirdly, that God is kind. He is so kind. He is gracious. He is merciful. And Daniel understood something of that kindness. Those three things of God helped him to withstand that pressure. And it will help us to withstand the pressure that we're under as well. So we'll begin there. To take a stand for the Holy One, we need to know first that God is, is sovereign. Is sovereign. Now we need to unpack just for the first few minutes here the world that Daniel and his three friends found themselves in rather suddenly in Babylon. The year is approximately 605 years before Christ and the first wave of attack against Jerusalem had just happened when Jehoiakim was in power. There would be two more evasions until the fall of Jerusalem in 586. But in this first attack, they went into the temple, they got the goods from the temple, the vessels, and they found the nobility, those who were of noble and royal class, and and they brought them over into Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar, wanting to build up his, his empire, wanted to train his young men and young women. You begin with the young to train for the future. And he found Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to join the others from other parts of his kingdom to be trained in the, in, the, in, the, in the philosophy of Babylon. That's where we're at. But it's good for us this morning, it's always good for us, to see if we can walk in the shoes of those four boys as they entered into Babylon and entered into the king's college. You see, the Babylon they entered in 
was nothing that they could have imagined or seen before. It was staggeringly large and staggeringly beautiful, this city. It made one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. According to Herodotus, one of the Greek historians, and he may be exaggerating a little bit, the historians like to exaggerate pomp and circumstances of, of yesteryear or yester millennium. But according to him, the city's walls were about 80 meters high. The walls, the, the, the perimeter was about 90 kilometers long, and the walls were about 24 meters deep, so that chariots could run back and forth on these walls to protect the, the city. There was a ziggurat, which is a tower, like the Tower of Babel, they think, that was about 150 meters high. So once you entered into Babylon, but even outside of Babylon, because it was pretty flat around there, you could see this huge tower. And they call it the foundation of heaven and earth. That's how high it was. It seemed to kiss the sky. And then there was this luminous Ishtar gate that they had to walk through. That gate is so prominent that it's it's displayed now, or a replica of it is displayed in Berlin, if you want to go find it. The Pergamon Museum. It was 25, 20, 45 meters wide, and over this gate were 550 carved images of lions and tigers and lepers and other creatures. And the castle, the castle was built on terraces, and it was a huge expanse. And on this castle were these beautiful hanging gardens. That's why it was, became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These beautiful hanging gardens. And the, and the Babylonians had figured a way of hydraulics to bring the water from the, the Euphrates River and pump it up to these various, various terraces so that the gardens would grow and become beautiful and extravagant. Nebuchadnezzar's wife was a gardener. She had lots of them. There were also engineers. They invented not only hydraulics and cooling systems, uh, they invented the watch. <laughs> so you can thank them this morning if you're bound by that thing. At least they found out that the number 60, the Babylonians, found out through astronomy that the number 60 would be the best integer for measuring time. And that's stuck to this day. That's why you have 60 seconds. And if that wasn't enough to force them to pause and wonder, they entered into this king's college, which also was extravagant. And before them, in opulency and beauty, they saw the riches of this king, and they also saw a table full of all the foods that you could possibly imagine. It was a beautiful buffet. Why do I share all this? Well, one, to help you understand that this is real time and real space, they walked into a real city and went to a real college, just in case you're wondering. But more than that, these young boys had to deal with this question at a very young age, and some of our young people are dealing with this same question at this a young age. Why do the heathens prosper when we who follow God have nothing in comparison to them. It can test the faith. Why would this heathen nation be so richly blessed and so advanced compared to God's own people who are basic shepherds and sheep rears 
Why, why were they so advanced and we were not? Why did they have a host of chariots and an army that could take away any other army and we just have a few in Jerusalem? Why has God not blessed us and he has blessed them so abundantly? And it's also easy to question God when you see God bless the nations of this world or other peoples and when you feel abandoned from your own land and abandoned from your own family. The questions can come fast and furious in that context. And this is where grace begins to shine, beloved. Daniel, as far as we know, did not question God. He understood, rather, that over all of this, God was sovereign. It was his business that they were there, his purposes. We begin in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, some of you who are quite astute would tell me in verse 1, there's nothing to do with God's sovereignty here, is there? And I would say, yeah, it's difficult to see it. I mean, this is just basic evolution. This is the survival of the fittest. You have a really big, powerful nation sitting over here. You have a small, meager, weak nation over here. And this big, powerful nation comes and destroys this other little nation and takes away their goods. Uh, that's been happening since the beginning of time. Happens in the animal kingdom. Happens in the kingdom of men. Nothing new here. But we're not Darwinists. We're not evolutionists. We don't believe in materialism, the materialist view of the world. And neither does Daniel. Read verse 2. Verse 2 says this. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles to the treasure house of his God. Read that word, gave. It's the Hebrew, Natan, and it comes up three times in chapter one. Three times. We'll get the other two quickly. It was God who gave this nation into the hands of this nation. It did not matter that Israel at this time or Judah at this time was a small, small nation in comparison to Babylon. It did not matter. It's God's purposes that were being fulfilled here. God can easily... <laughs> destroy Babylon. They're like a drop in the bucket. No, God gave. And Daniel understood already at a young age that God gave because his people never gave God his due worship. But they had broken covenant with God and God had promised if you break covenant, you will receive the curses of the covenant and part of that curse is to be removed from the land of promise. But then we read in verse 9, just this continuing idea of God's sovereignty. Verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. This word brought into favor is also the Hebrew natan, which means to give. God gave uh, favor to Daniel through the eunuch. That means that God was tender in the, moved the heart of the eunuch to like Daniel. 
You realize already now that you know, God, is, God is moving on the cosmic level. He's moving on national levels or transnational levels, but he's also moving in the micro level. He's also dealing tenderly with us. He's changing people's perception of us. He's changing our context. He makes it well for us. That's a gift from God, beloved. Daniel understood that. He wrote this. And then verse 17 it says this, as for these four young men, God gave, the same word again, Natan, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Daniel understood that the gifts that he had, because he was pretty intelligent, or else he wouldn't have been chosen. I mean, some of you kids are really intelligent, you're doing really well in school. Please thank God for that. Don't post it on Facebook, I'm the, most, I'm the smartest in my class. No, you wouldn't do that. No, God gives intelligence and aptitude and ability to discern. He gives artistic flavor, artistic gifts. Yes, he gives us talents that we have to exercise and exploit for his kingdom in the good sense of the word. Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required of him. And this includes all of our talents and all of our abilities. Daniel understood that. You see, Daniel had a, had a, had, had a, yeah, at a young age a, a pretty firm understanding of God's sovereignty. And there's just two things I want to take away from this this, this this morning is this, that Daniel understood, and so must we, that God is directing history. History is not circular. It just doesn't keep revolving in a circle. No, history is linear. God starts and God will complete the story. God had a purpose in sending Daniel and his three friends to Nebuchadnezzar. It's part of God's story of redemption. Daniel understood that. And so must we. And God is still completing that story. That final ultimate redemption has not come. And God is still working through history to bring about the final return of his son. We know that. And the second thing that we learn from Daniel, and this is drawing us to another chapter in Daniel, it is this. That just because we don't understand everything that God is doing, just because God, you know, is, is something of a mystery and sometimes of what, what he's doing, we don't have the full picture of God's purposes and what he's doing, we can't sell God short. Daniel, you see, did not know how long, and maybe not even the ultimate reason for their exile in Babylon when he first got there. He did not know how long they were going to be there for and maybe even the ultimate reason of why they were there. How do we know that? Because a few chapters later, many years later, when Darius was king, Nebuchadnezzar had died, same with his son. It reads this in chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, here's, this is Daniel, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And then he goes into prayer. One of the most beautiful prayers in the chapter in Daniel. He goes into prayer. He all of a sudden had a bigger understanding of what God was doing and, and how long things would last. And he praises God and at that time he confesses the sins of his forefathers and their own sin. All that to say, 
just because you don't have a clear picture of the future. It's because life is hard right now. Don't sell your covenant God short. Trust him in the darkness. Trust him when the veil of unknownness is right in front of you. Trust him. The second thing that Daniel teaches us this morning, or the book of Daniel teaches, or the Lord teaches us this morning, that God is holy. <laughs> and we've got to take his holiness really seriously, wherever we are. You see, the Lord desires holiness in every part of our life and in every context of our life. We can't check our holiness at the door when we leave the sanctuary. We say, okay, this is a holy sanctuary. This is a place where God is praised. But when we're out there, we can act and be as we want to be. That kind of dichotomy, that kind of splitting apart your life is not of Christ. Or put another way, just because God brings us into new environments, and even in these new environments, we may be under much stress or duress, it doesn't mean we can compromise in the area of holiness. Holiness befits our lives as white befits snow, and I'm seeing a lot of that these days here. But you can't separate the white from the snow. It's like you can't separate your holiness from, from, from your Christian life. You, you are a holy people. Daniel's three friends would have been familiar with the theme that runs through the Torah. They were well familiar with the Torah, the five books of Moses. And that's how God defines his people. He defines his people as a holy people. He says in Leviticus 11 verse 44, be holy because I am holy. And God repeats that again in 11, uh, 19 verse 2, be holy because I am holy. And Peter picks up this theme in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 16, be holy because the Lord is holy. Now, holiness is part of our, our psyche. That's who we are. We need to act that out. We've been declared holy and we need to live a holy life. Now, how did Daniel show that he wanted to live a holy life before the Lord? Well, here. Daniel was and his friends were tempted with really delicious food. Now, you have to understand that Daniel and his three friends may not have seen food like this ever in their life. They were not living at the height of, of, of Jewish culture and Jewish cuisine at this time. And so they enter into the king's courts, and before them was a buffet that would blow the, the mandarin apart. And Daniel is like every young man, um, 15 or 16, ravenously hungry. They could eat a table if they wanted to. And so you have these young men away from their parents, out of their own context, out of the security of their home, thrown into the king's college and told to eat this buffet that was beautiful and delicious and everything in the body would say let's just <laughs> let's just enjoy this for a while and and Daniel says no I can't give me vegetables and the kids are saying why would you ask for vegetables give me vegetables and water what makes a young man a 15 years old, refused delicacies coming from all over the ancient world and say, just give me vegetables, please. 
think there's three reasons that grace is at work here in three ways. The number first way that it's at work is this, that Daniel understood the Torah. And the Torah is very clear, of course, on what food, what food is clean and unclean. And um, they were trained in that. So any of the food that was unclean was forbidden to eat. And God says, if you eat that food, you will be unclean. Even worse, you'll be cut off. And because he wants to be with the God of Israel, because he wants to serve his Yahweh, he didn't want to be cut off from him. So he says, I don't want to eat that food. You can read about that in Levit- Leviticus 11. But there may be another reason. The other reason might be that this food could have been offered to other gods. They had, they had a, a plethora, a, a thousands of deities that they were worshipping, and, and many of them demanded food that was, would be offered to them, and then because they couldn't eat it, they would take it back. But we know from Acts chapter 15 that that food is defiled if it's been offered to idols. Daniel would have known that. But I think there's also one more reason that goes to the heart as well. It moves from the law to the heart, but those two are often so close that you can't separate them. And that's this. Daniel, it seemed, did not want to become a slave to the trappings of the Babylonian world. He did not want to become a slave to the trappings of the Babylonian world. And you know, beloved, as well as I do, in a consumeristic society like we live in, food actually can enslave us. Did you know that? And so can alcohol. One of the great slaveries of our age. So can smoking. So can a lot of things. But maybe the words of Solomon in Proverbs uh, 30 verse 8 were ringing in the ears of Daniel. Proverbs 30 verse 8 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Oh, we struggle with that one. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is Yahweh? See, that's what happens when all our needs are met. We, we don't really need the Lord because our needs are met. The lie. Who is the Lord? I don't think Daniel wanted to ask that question in Babylon. He says, I just, just give me enough to satisfy me, to, 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 to serve the Lord with this food. I don't need all those other trappings. I, I'm here as a servant of the Most High. And so are all of you on this earth as servants, as children of the Most High. That's why one of the beautiful things of a Christian life is simplicity. Simplicity. God blesses and God calls us to live simple lives. But his decision by grace to stand for holiness was richly blessed. That's how the Lord also operates. He gives us the grace to withstand the pressure and then he blesses us in our decision It says, at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Amazing. I'm moved here. I am moved by the grace given these men and the maturity of their faith. They were blessed. And you come away with the conclusion as you read this chapter 1, and that's this, that, that it's possible. 
In God's grace, it's possible to withstand the wiles of Babylon and our social media-infested age and our consumeristic society. It's possible to stand strong in the faith in our current age. It's possible. It's possible to say no to conforming to your friend's desires and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, says Paul Chapter 12 of Romans, it's possible in Christ. All things are possible as we live for him. You see, in an age of rampant secularization and growing hedonism and sexual perversion and relativism and the church of Jesus Christ needs a, young, needs a generation of young people like Daniel who are willing and able by his grace to stand up and be counted as those who belong to Christ. Listen, young people, that means anyone over, under the age of 40. The community, the church, the nation of Canada needs a generation of young men and women who are willing to deny themselves and say it's all for Jesus. Maybe you know this song. All I am and have and ever hope to be, all of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. All of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. We need a generation of young men who say that and young women who say that every day. It's all for you. It's all for you. Give me vegetables. But there's a word to the parents here as well, beloved. That Daniel and his friends were not hatched in Babylon. And all the children say amen. Nobody's hatched, right? No, they grew up in homes. They grew up in homes where God's sovereignty was taught and and believed and his holiness was honored. That seems to be the home environment that nurtured these young men. I'm speculating. But I think it's true. You see, beloved, for our children to be able to withstand the pressures of this dark age, we need homes where, that, are, that are sanctuaries of holiness. We need homes that are theaters of praise to our sovereign God, that that marks our home. We don't just put a sign, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a great something on the door. But it has to live in our hearts and we have to dedicate our home to the Lord. And we have to say, this is, the, this is the way of the Lord. This is how we're going to live before him in our homes. That's our sanctuary, beloved. You see, if it's corrupted by the lies of Babylon, the licentiousness, the perverted wares of this world, if all that perversion just keeps invading our homes and we're not shielding our children and walking them through this, they're they're just going to be ill-prepared to stand up against the dark perversions of this world when they leave the home. They got nothing. You know, pornography is one of the greatest diabolic scourges on the church today. It's destroying husbands and wives. It's destroying marriages. It's just invading our homes and in our hearts. The devil keeps finding ingenious ways to desensitize God's people to its hell-stricken effect. 
And by grace and in much prayer and striving in his strength, we need to make our homes sanctuaries of holiness and guard our own hearts, beloved. Fathers and mothers, guard your hearts for Christ's sake. Because as you guard your heart and you repent of your sins and you seek to walk in holiness, you have a lot of ammunition, a lot of grace-filled ammunition to address the issues with your children. But if you're compromising fathers and mothers in the area of holiness, it is so hard to lead your children to Christ. Thankfully, we can also say that not only is God holy and demands holiness from us, he's also very gracious and he's very kind and he helps us. You see, there's two ways to understand God's graciousness. I think the one way is subjective and the other one is objective. The subjective way of understanding God's grace is what we see in our passage here. It's that as, as Daniel was serving the Lord and, and his three friends were serving the Lord in Babylon, they were also um, dealt tenderly with. We talked about that. God was tender with them through Ashpenaz. And Nebuchadnezzar really liked these guys a lot. That was God's grace to them and they felt God's kindness, his hand. But there's something objective and I'm going to finish with this. There's something very objective about what's happening here. And that's this. That their names, beloved, were objective reminders of God's favor to them. And I don't know how it all happened, how their parents named them and how they figured this all out. But their parents were, were, were God-fearers. They, they worshipped Yahweh. Because Daniel, you understand, means God is my judge. And Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. And Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. You see a, see a theme running through their names? Their names are objective reminders of who the God of Israel was to them. Who was this God to them? They carried around those names. But get this. Babylon loves to change names. You see, the world does not want us to identify with the God of the universe. Nothing's changed. 3,000 years later, 2,500 years later, nothing's changed. The world does not want us to say we are Christians. Their contempt towards us continues to grow because as we identify with them, they begin to hate, identify with Christ, they begin to hate us more. Babylon, you see, did not want to have their names draw attention to the uniqueness of God, of Yahweh. So what they did, they found parodies of their names. Uh, Daniel became Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means may Bel, one of their gods, protect his life. Hananiah became Shadrach. Shadrach means the command of Aku, and Aku was their moon god. Mishael means Meshach, which means who is Aku is the question. And Azariah means Abednego, the servant of the god Nabu, another one of their deities. It was mocking the God of Israel. And yet in so many ways their Hebrew names continued through the book to, to point to God who would secure their identity. 
You see, Babylon can change a name, but Babylon cannot steal their heart. Babylon can change their name, but Babylon cannot take away their identity. You see, their Hebrew names points to how God would secure their identity ultimately in Christ. The Old Testament and New Testament, all of God's people need the atonement of Jesus. These names point to Jesus. In a word, you could say Jesus would and ultimately did secure their identity on the cross. Babylon tried to change them, but Jesus secured their identity and said, don't worry about Babylon, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine, and you're also mine. I'm going to identify you. The world is trying to make us their own and will continue to try that. But Jesus says, if you believe in me, you do not belong to the world. You belong to me. That's what we confess. The first Lord's Day in our Heidelberg Catechism, we confess that basic truth. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has bought me with his precious blood. That's who I belong to. He has the right to identify me, and my identity is secure in him. I don't know if Daniel had access to the scrolls of Isaiah. I imagine he might have. However, these words have so much meaning to us as they did to Daniel. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And listen to this. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what the world calls you. No, you need to put your ear to heaven. What does the Lord call you? He says, you're mine. I know your identity. I have identified you. Uh, the world can do whatever it wants, but you belong to Christ, and the banner over you now is love, his love, because of what he's done on the cross for you. For all of you who are struggling this morning with illness or struggling in your battle against a persistent sin or feeling insecure or anxious or depressed, hurting, grieving, feeling as if Babylon is just turning in on you and turning you out, and you're not sure where God is in this storm, I proclaim to you with all the authority of heaven on my side that you belong to Christ. His Father is your Father. He says you are mine. Believe that. And just hold on to that. And if you're letting go, he will still hold on to you. Because sometimes in the darkness, all you feel like, all that's happening you feel is that you're letting go. And God says, you're not letting go. I have called you by name. You're mine. Your identity is founded in him. Your identity is all wrapped up in his sovereign, holy, merciful God who's claimed you. So beloved, when you leave here and as you go about your life, remember, remember who you are for Christ's sake. Amen.